The Citizens' Council promises help and advice to everyone. Their Citizens' Council? As far as I'm concerned, what's theirs is yours. I am not one of them! No, no one is. Go back, tell them I was not interested, that I wouldn't even listen. I won't go for it! Whatever it is! So you may as well stop trying. We never stop number six. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, or maybe all this time the real host has been on vacation, and I've actually just been the acting host, or maybe now the real host is retiring and I'm taking his place. Really, it's all very confusing. My co-host is Guy, who I think is probably trying to assassinate me again, but that's just so he doesn't have to take on hosting duties himself or something. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So how would you like this shiny seal of podcast office to wear? Oh, I'd love it. Just uh, hang on to it for me, and I'll be by <laughs> to pick it up real soon. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of context for this episode, but I'll say right up front, this may be our most complex story so far. I don't know how you feel. I mean, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Uh, certainly, it's in the running, yeah. Yeah, I I find it hard to believe the people watching it at the time when they could only watch it once when it was on, could pick up everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like I say, not a lot of context, so we'll head right into It's Your Funeral. Well, the show starts off with a a young woman, a pretty young woman. She's blonde with brown eyes, and she's walking very hesitantly towards apartment six. So we see these shots of her legs as she's walking, right? And... Hmm. At the time, I thought, well, there's something a little weird here. She, she's walking on, like, rocks that are near Number Six's apartment. Just coincidentally, when I was doing some other research, I ran across the fact that the reason for that, or the reason I was seeing something odd, is that this was actually in a studio, and the rocks were actually a mat <laughs> that just had a picture of rocks on them. Oh. So when she's walking, her feet are <laughs> depressing into the mat. <laughs> That I did not notice that. I, all I noticed was she seemed to be walking pretty gingerly. <laughs> she finally makes it to the apartment, though, and she pushes the door open, which is mildly significant because mm. she doesn't knock. She just, just pushes it right open and enters. And then we hear some ominous flute music, and the camera pulls back to reveal number two and the supervisor watching her on the big screen. This is the supervisor we've seen before the bald guy with the glasses, but the number two is a new one for us. Yeah. And I don't know, it was this scene or maybe the next, but it was very unusual because he has a very distinct look, right? He has this mm-hmm. very blonde dyed hair that's... Yeah, almost yellow. And what's the right word for quaffed? Or, you know, very... <laughs> yeah, it's a very styled hand. <laughs> and he's wearing a bright red Hugh Hefner style smoking jacket. And I thought that was going to be his look, you know, because he kind of fits into that look. But in the rest of the scenes, he's wearing like a dark navy blue suit. So I have no Mm -hmm. idea why they had the one scene with him in the smoking jacket. Might be one of those (laughs) things where the actor brought something in. Who knows? That could be. (laughs) I was glad to see the supervisor, though, because it may have been in the last one 
there was a number two who kind of went crazy and fired the supervisor. Right. So I'm glad to see that he managed to get his position back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I imagine after they decided that number two was crazy, they probably undid some of his decisions. (laughs) So they are watching this lady enter the apartment, and the supervisor says, at last. (laughs) The woman enters number six's apartment, and she heads cautiously toward the bedroom. Number six is lying asleep in bed there. She reaches out and she touches number six on the shoulder, and before, I think before she even actually manages to touch his shoulder, he reacts and he pulls out his secret agent moves and he flips (laughs) around to the bed. Yeah, he has told us before that he's a light sleeper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he says, what are you doing here? And the woman says, I was just going to wake you up. As if that's a good reason. I I really appreciate it when random people walk into my apartment and wake me up. (laughs) (laughs) The woman says the the door was open. And number six says, always is to them, isn't it? The woman says, I'm not one of them. Number six is not real happy to see her here. He says, what do you want? She says, help. He says, go to the town hall. The Citizens Council promises help and advice to everyone. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny. Really, that's, I think, a callback to the first episode, right? I think that's the only time mm, they really mentioned that. But, that that yeah. might be a direct line from it. I can't recall. But they, I remember they were showing them around the town, and they described all the institutions. So there <laughs> could be a direct quote from there. Number six starts to tell her to just go back to her master's. But he decides to cut out the middleman, and he just starts yelling at the bugs in his living room because he knows they're watching and listening. He says, I won't go for it, whatever it is, so you may as well stop trying. And in the war room, number two says, we never stop, number six. Now, the number six doesn't get to hear that. This is just number two's little amusing aside. So the woman's getting ready to leave the apartment, and number two says, now we'll see how accurately they've timed it. Yeah, and I want to say here, and we'll see throughout this scene especially, this number two is really, really engaged and really loves all the tricks they're pulling and everything. So when he says, now we'll see how accurately they've timed it, he's really interested in, did we get this right? You know, he's he's not mm-hmm. like a disengaged number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he is a hands-on kind of guy. <laughs> he says this, and then the woman collapses right there in number six's apartment. Number two reveals that she was given the drug yesterday, but this drug remains dormant until it's triggered by the nervous system. So her agitation at meeting number six and sneaking in and all that, that was the trigger that set it off. The supervisor thinks that number six is going to throw her out as soon as she comes to, but two says, no, no, you see, she's become a lady in distress. (laughs) And number six is the sort of good-hearted sap who will help a lady in distress, I guess. Mm -hmm. Number two says, I don't recall my procedure authorizing the door being left open. So this is that hands-on aspect of him coming out again. Mm -hmm. The supervisor explains it was to ensure that the woman would have access to the apartment. Number two replies, doesn't she know how to knock on a door then? (laughs) The supervisor says, he doesn't always answer. (laughs) And I have to say, when he first complained about the door being left open, at first I thought this is really kind of a silly detail, right? Like he's overly Mm -hmm. thinking this, it doesn't matter. But actually, I come to agree with him. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Number two goes on to say, uh, now he's going to assume that we sent her, and we don't want that, do we? He says, this plan is too important for just little slapdash improvisations, you know. Yeah, and really, this is the first time we've seen the supervisor not do well at his job, because he's trying to defend it. He just says, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. this is where I say, number two is right. They've screwed up this whole thing right from the beginning, because the whole idea, I mean, they spent, a whole, as we'll see, they waited a long time for her to go to number six on her own. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is for number six to feel that he can trust her because she apparently, you know, is doing this on her own. And by having her have access to his apartment right up front, it, they just blew it out of the water. So yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. interesting. Yep. Yeah. But this number two presses forward. He, he's confident the plan can be salvaged. The woman wakes up, and number two is impressed. That's the uh, the exact time of waking up that the <laughs> scientist predicted. The woman apologizes to number six. She says, sorry, exhaustion. He says, no, drugs. He goes on to point out that her pupils are dilated or contracted or one or the other, a sign of having drugs in her system. And she says, I don't take drugs. <laughs> and she must be, I don't know, naive or something because <laughs> anybody you would think who lived in the village would know well there's drugs in my system and i don't take drugs therefore <laughs> <laughs> but she she seems to be taking a while to catch on number six explains that she was force fed them and she says why would they number six says you tell me she says you'll condescend to listen <laughs> This may be a good place to insert the audio clip here. Number six begins talking to the bugs in his apartment again. I listen as long as what you're saying doesn't become too obviously phony. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that tone of voice he gets when we see it once in a while, it's kind of like he has two voice settings, right? <laughs> sort of his normal <laughs> setting and then this really high thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, almost shrill. Yeah. <laughs> He does that once or twice later on, too. But the woman decides to leave. But on the other hand, she's unable to think of any place better to go for help. So she makes a final plea. She says, this concerns the welfare of everybody in this village. Number six makes a joke about that, how the village provides for people's welfare. But the woman says, joke about this if you can. Assassination. <laughs> Number six replies, are you trying to organize or prevent one? So apparently he can joke about this. Mm -hmm. The woman says they would have to take reprisals. Everybody would suffer. It seems that this is a fairly persuasive argument for number six. Also, you know, you mentioned the jokes he's making. An unusual thing about this episode compared to others is there are jokes all the way through this script. There's a lot of funny stuff mm -hmm. in it, even though it's a very intense story, much more so than in, than in most of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a... Well-paced show overall. Oh, there are actually a couple places where it slows down. <laughs> yeah, well, we I was, I was, I was kind of grateful for that because it meant I, it, it was faster for me to take notes. <laughs> <laughs> the woman says, I need your help in preventing an assassination. Number six, again, addressing the bugs in the room. He says, they've heard, they are aware, and they don't need anyone's help. <laughs> the woman says, they don't believe me. So this is where that little wrinkle gets thrown in because mm -hmm. she's living in this, the midst of this surveillance society, but she explains her name is on a list for jamming. 
Number six is not familiar with the term, so he says, all right, enlighten me now. And the woman says, no, I tell lies, remember, very, very petulantly. She's really <laughs> insulted that he hasn't believed her. Number six just stares at that, and the woman says, I'm sorry I ever bothered you. And then we get back to number two. He says, if only I had just a little bit more time. The supervisor says they're running late, and when he points that out, right on cue, there's a call, which is presumably number one. I was disappointed that in this episode, the calls from number one come in like on the normal phones, not on the, oh, yeah, the big red yeah, phone. Yeah, this we is a little, like <laughs> little yellow intercom style yeah. phone, yeah. But number two, we only hear his end of the conversation, but he's making excuses for delays in the project. And he gives us a little bit of exposition here that number six's selection for this plan was to give it credibility without which the plan might backfire. So somehow, it hasn't become clear to the viewers yet, but somehow number six is going to add a certain amount of his own unique panache to this plan. <laughs> number two ends the call by telling, presumably number one, as you say, I must find a way to make him interested. You mentioned that he, he made excuses, and, you know, his excuse is to blame the woman. Right? He says she took a long time <laughs> to decide to go to number six. But that comes back to the whole thing we were saying. They've really been setting this whole thing up, and then the supervisor kind of screwed it up. But I hadn't even really picked up on it. And what you were talking about with number six realizing that she had been drugged, I think that's what kind of fixed the problem, right? Once he realized mm. that she had been drugged against her will, then he could start to trust her, even though yeah. she had come in through the door. <laughs> yeah, it would uh, would be a little data point in her favor, anyway. Number two wants today's activity prognosis on number six as quickly as possible, <laughs> which is unfortunate because it means that the poor computer programmers have to start working. <laughs> I can sympathize with that. So they're doing their computery stuff and a voice narrates what will happen on number six's day it talks about his daily walk he climbs the bell tower daily he'll have a workout in the woods he has a nice homemade gymnastic bar and a punching bag he's got quite a little setup there actually another guy who doesn't look anything like him will have a workout in the woods did you notice they didn't even i mean you have straight on shots of this guy's face and it's not him and it's just like, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I did not notice that. But then I was just admiring the whole setup he had up there because he basically just built himself a little gym. Yeah. <laughs> Quite ambitious. After that, he's going to cool off with some water skiing. <laughs> I did not know that was a feature offered in the village. I, very I, yeah, I'm going to say this was a mistake in the story. First of all, we know how important things like boats are and the idea that he mm -hmm. or, you know, would have any access to a boat. But also, uh, this is something that was pointed out on a website I was looking at. Actually, it was a website you had mentioned once, the Pop Apostle site. Right. <laughs> and they point out that you can see across the water all these houses and stuff on across <laughs> the island and everything. That <laughs> they do in the village. So, I don't know why they've put this shot in there. They, they just should have left it out. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, that could have been meant to be the shore of the village, too. I mean, I, I don't know. But The other thing I wanted to mention, the, my favorite line, maybe in the whole series, was when they have him climbing the bell tower. And the analyst or whoever is saying he's going to climb the bell tower at this point, which he does every day, they say, Daily subject climbs the bell tower. Reason unknown. Subject eccentric. Certainly watching, waiting, constantly aggressive. Is possible that subject likes the view. 
Or maybe he likes the view. <laughs> yeah. I thought that it's was really as, funny. <laughs> as plausible as anything. Yep. <laughs> Let's see. Next, after the cooling off on the water skis, he's going to go to the cafe and have some coffee and then buy a newspaper. And we get to see the newspaper cart with its roll of newspapers where they, <laughs> where they just cut one off. Then they'll go for a game of chess at the old folks' home, and it, the computers can even predict that he's going to checkmate in 11 moves. <laughs> and then he's going to round it all out by sitting for a portrait for a little while. So number two's office, number two is talking to number 100, or uh, I think at one point in the show he's referred to as one double zero. So yep. there may be a little James Bond <laughs> reference there. Well, and oh, I hadn't thought about that. When they say Division Q, and Q is a James Bond Oh, Q character. is the gadget person in the James yeah, Bond Yeah, so there movies, could be a right? connection here. Let me, we, we learned that this plan that we've been seeing some of the unexplained details of, the plan is called Division Q, and number 100 is confident that things are on schedule with the plan. We learned that number 100, or 100, is in cover. He's been being your your typical village stooge, you know, one of the captors rather than the captives. They uh, called them the guardians in Checkmate, I think it was, right? You're, you're they, guarding uh, your yeah, prisoner, I've, yeah. I've heard a few different terms for masters and guardians and, and so forth and them. <laughs> In this case, he says, they still think of me as just another prisoner. So he's he's acknowledging outright that the people here are prisoners. And he says he's getting along well with his subject. He says, we're kindred spirits, comrades. Then we see number six sitting for his portrait, as, as was predicted by the computers. The artist is explaining who jammers are. They're people who talk about plans, mostly escape plans, but all kinds of plans. And the plans are always fake. And for a long time, control, which is security, control had to check them out because you can't let something like that just slide. But finally, after many times of fruitless investigations and finding out that the plans never led anywhere, control finally made a list of all these jammers, and now it generally ignores them. <laughs> and then the artist reveals the portrait he's been working on. It's a... Uh, Non-representational piece, <laughs> abstract art with geometric figures. <laughs> Which, again, um, is a joke because he's he keeps pinging number six every time number six moves. So we assume he's doing <laughs> a very accurate <laughs> portrait, right? And it turns yeah. out to should just be yeah, a bunch of figures. <laughs> and number six is perfect likeness. <laughs> now, a couple things about this scene. When they were predicting that number six would sit down for the portrait artist, they said he may have a, his own reason for doing this. And I think we see that they were right because presumably they're out in the open, you know, and presumably in a place where it would be hard to bug them. And the artist is just some nice old guy who's answering number six's question about jammers. So I think they're right mm. that his ulterior motive for sitting for this portrait is here's someone he can sort of talk to in private without being overheard and get some information. Yeah, yeah, the artist does seem kind of chatty. He knows some stuff about the village. So, yeah. And also, I'm not sure, but I believe that this is out of sequence. In the narration we got, sitting for the portrait was the very last thing that would happen in the day. Hmm. And here it's the starting thing. 
At number two's office, the technician lady walks in. We had gotten a brief look at her earlier. She was the one who got all the programmers to start programming. She comes in, she, or she's in number two's office, and number two asks about the percentage chances that the information is correct. He wants to know the confidence level of all these different predictions. And interestingly, the tech lady says the computers refuse to tell them. She says they'll ask them to give percentages, but they never do. Number two replies, they'll be wanting their own trade union next. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an interesting little thing about the computers behaving that way because, of course, computers just do whatever you tell them to do <laughs> unless you've got an actual hardware problem. So there's something wrong with the programming there. It, it, it brings to mind in the movie Westworld, there's some line about how the robots that they use in Westworld and the computers they use, they weren't designed by people. They were designed by computers that were designed by people. <laughs> so they're to the point where if you're familiar with, I think, genetic algorithms mm -hmm. uh, where they sort of evolve an algorithm to do something, and in the end, they come up with one that can do whatever task that you set to it, but it's completely incomprehensible to humans. There's like no, no, no semblance of human logic in any form that we can recognize. It's just right. seemingly random instructions that produce an orderly outcome. So I'm wondering if, you know, I don't know if that idea was current back in the late 60s, <laughs> but the idea that they have these computers that they can't control is... Uh, <laughs> right. doesn't inspire confidence in the organization. Now, I have my own interpretation from my experience. It's, you know, in addition to being a programmer, I used to manage programmers. And I can tell you that when a programmer didn't want to do something, they'd always <laughs> oh, that's just not possible. It just can't be done. <laughs> and occasionally it would get so bad that I would go home that night, figure out how to do it, and come back with it and say, well, here it is. You know, but on the other hand, a programmer would come back from the weekend and say, oh, I created a whole graphic subsystem this weekend. <laughs> it's like, okay, you couldn't do this simple thing that you didn't want to do, but you could create a whole graphic subsystem. Okay. Well, that's, so, so I blame this on the programmers, not the computers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Programmers can be a fickle crowd. <laughs> the tech lady continues reading off the events predicted before, but there's a, there's a twist. Now there's a bag of sweets in the picture when he's at the cafe and afterwards when he's getting a newspaper and buying a few things. Now they're predicting he'll buy a bag of sweets. And number two knows that number six doesn't go for sweets. He says, it's wrong. It doesn't work. But the lady persuades him to keep watching. And right next to number six, there's a broke villager and she can't buy sweets. And she, she she's protests. a little old lady, right? I mean, she's probably like yeah. 80 or something. Yeah. Right, right. A sweet little old lady. And the she says, but I can't go through an entire day without my sweets. <laughs> so number six, being the white knight that he is, he buys her a bag of sweets. So number two asks the lady, how did you know? And she replies with the obvious answer, <laughs> which is that programming must include a quantum permutation of all cause and effects of supplementary elements. <laughs> and this, to me, it, as well as the computers are predicting things, it seems like the computers could predict the whole story, you know, right, that, right. that everything that's going to happen throughout the episode. So I'm, I have a science fiction theory here that maybe the AI developed consciousness, which I'm skeptical of the idea that AI could actually develop consciousness, but you know, for the science fiction story, let's go with it. 
And once it's developed consciousness, it doesn't try to take over the world. It just wants to be basically an internet troll and just <laughs> play pranks on the people who are running the village. That's my theory. There's another joke in here that I liked. So after the tech lady gives this, you know, incomprehensible explanation, <laughs> number two looks at her and he says, so you're saying that they predicted that the woman would be there and want sweets and so he'd buy the sweets for her. <laughs> and she looks really <laughs> mad at him. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, that's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he puts it in the layman's English. <laughs> she starts to tell about what's coming up in the chess matches and number two doesn't care, has her skip it. But then she mentions that Kasha practice is coming up, and we've only recently <laughs> become acquainted with Kasha. My favorite Olympic sport ever. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that is what number two wanted to hear. This Kasha practice is going to provide an opportunity for his next act of subterfuge. And next, we're in the gym. And this is Kasha. We <laughs> described it briefly in an earlier episode. It looks like it could actually be a bit of fun to play, but... It's set up with a, it requires a long room because you've got two long trampolines <laughs> with a small pool in the middle. Right. And then on three sides of that whole conglomeration, you've got a catwalk up above it on, on three sides. So it's a pretty intricate little playing field there. You say it would be entertaining to watch. I'm going to say what would be entertaining is betting on who's going to break their neck first. (laughs) This is the most dangerous sport that has ever been devised. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And there could be be some risk of bodily harm in it. But the way they play it, though, for the most part, it's it's very, it seems very formalized. They don't Mm. really, I mean, this isn't like a, you know, UFC championship or something or, you know, some... Something where there's constant interaction and action. There's a lot of it. They just sort of spend a lot of the time bouncing up and down and looking <laughs> menacingly at each other. Couple things here. One is uh, production notes. You know, they had they used this thing in three or four episodes. We've seen. You know, this is our second or third time we've seen it. And because the people are wearing helmets and they're wearing robes that sort of cover their whole body. They would just take shots from any one of the ones that they did. So at different times, <laughs> the person you're looking at will be that he's fighting is someone different, you know, if you watch carefully. Ah, all right. So during this scene, we have some very meditative Asian music playing in the background. It's kind of uh, stuff you might associate with a Zen garden or some other Asian tranquility setting of some sort. And while this match is going on, number 100 enters, and he's in the locker room, sort of peering into the gymnasium. <laughs> and this, the kasha goes on for a little while. They actually do a whole bunch of stuff. And like I said, it seems mostly ritualistic. There's not a lot of direct attacking, a lot of running past each other and jumping right. up onto the catwalk. So while the kasha action is going on, uh, number 100 tampers with number six's locker. And he swaps out a watch for an identical one that has one small difference, which we'll find out in just a moment. And finally, back in the trampolines, number six tosses his opponent into the pool and the match is over. And I'm rather pleased with myself because the last time we saw Kasha, I speculated that might be the goal of the sport. Yeah, although the, right. yeah, the last time the goal was to kill number six. But, uh, <laughs> the actual goal of the game does seem to be to get the other person in the water. 
<laughs> I will say, I know you said up front that you appreciated a couple of kind of mental breaks in the show because so much is going on. But this time, especially, I just this went on and on and on. I mean, <laughs> it was it went several minutes before number one hundred showed up. Then number one hundred <laughs> watches them for a while. Then he switches the watch, and then the, it keeps going. <laughs> At some point, it's like, hey, man, <laughs> I got an appointment or something. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they just had some time to fill. Yeah, we should I think uh, so. we should check the writing credits and see if somebody from Doctor Who was working on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, the funny thing is for all the plot in this episode, and we haven't even gotten to like half the plot yet. They have a couple of scenes that are clearly filler. I mean, they they clearly needed to uh, find some time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so finally, number six wins the match. Uh, yeah, they bow to each other and all that stuff, and then. Uh, Number six goes and gets his watch out of the locker, and he notices that it's busted because it's not really the watch he had when he <laughs> came in. So the next scene takes place, logically enough, at the clock shop. Number six is taking his watch over. See, for me, I'd, <laughs> I'd probably take the watch, set it on a counter somewhere, and find it six months later and say, oh, i got to get this fixed. <laughs> but <laughs> yep. number six doesn't let things lie around. He, he's in the clock shop. I was going to say, boy, there's a lot of clock activity in this village. Remember one of the early episodes, <laughs> the regular store was selling all the cuckoo clocks. Actually, we just saw that yeah. recently. And so, you know, they must have competition going here <laughs> because now we have <laughs> an entire <laughs> shop just for clocks. <laughs> Well, you don't want to be caught out after curfew. That's, uh, that's when Rover comes out to play. Yeah. So the repairman in the clock shop, he's an older fella, and to me he looks kind of like Charlie Bucket's grandpa from Willy Wonka <laughs> and the Chocolate Factory. That's that's the one with Gene Wilder. I don't think I ever saw the one with Johnny Depp in it. But that original Charlie Bucket's grandpa, that's who the repairman looks like yeah, to he's, me. Yeah, yeah, he's a great old guy. You know, clearly he's the tinkerer. He's always got the glasses with the extra lens on it so that he could be inspecting jewelry. Right, a little jeweler's loop, I think it's called. Yeah, but, uh, yeah so yeah, he's well cast for this. He he looks like your little old old tinkerer. He takes the watch from number six and goes to it. He, he's, when number six comes in, this repairman, he's sitting at a large desk working on some project or another. And he takes the watch from number six and goes to a different workbench elsewhere in the room, which gives number six a chance to look at what he was working on. It's some kind of large mechanism with a switch of some sort in it. It's impossible for him to make out exactly what it is. So number six actually plays with it, and the larger mechanism, and he depresses a switch on it, and he sees mm -hmm. that... Uh, separately, a little lever moves on another device when he depresses the switch. So he, you know, mm. I, uh, if, first of all, it's a little rude to just come in and start pressing switches <laughs> on some of these devices. But I think he sees pretty quickly what it's about. That it's a remote mechanism of yeah. some kind. Yeah. But when he asks the watchmaker about it, what it's for, the watchmaker says it's nothing. It's just a toy. Mm -hmm. And as soon as number six leaves with his fixed watch... Number 100 emerges from hiding. It isn't clear exactly where he was. He was somewhere right in that room, it seems, or in a little Yeah, he was just in space. the back of the room, I think, yeah. yeah. The watchmaker seems a little skeptical. Number 100 is in on it with him, and they're deliberately letting number six see what they're doing. And I think this is who number 100 was talking about earlier, yeah. about the person who had become his comrade. 
Well, and I think for all the plot in this, one plot thread that I think is a little underdone, like it's not, you know, they don't quite explain it unless you pay really close attention to the earlier dialogue. It seems that number 100 has some technique for sort of brainwashing somebody. And Hmm. so he is essentially brainwashed the watchmaker to be part of this plot that we're going to find out about. And at times the watchmaker will act in sort of odd ways. And if you haven't picked up that brainwashing thing, it doesn't make as much sense. Well, I say it kind of fall, you know, it's not, uh, it's like it was a plot thread they didn't develop, which is a little interesting because about every other episode of the prisoner is about some form of brainwashing. (laughs) <laughs> so you'd think they would have uh, had it down by now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the watchmaker isn't sure that it's wise to let number six see all this. But number 100 explains that they're adding to the confusion that this is deliberate. Control doesn't believe anything we say or do or intend to do. And that's the way they want it. Right. They They want to keep them in the fog. And then number six leaves the clock shop. There's some plot. We don't know what the plot is yet, but number 100 explicitly wants control, although we know he's actually in on the whole thing. Right. To know the real plot because he knows that they won't pay attention to the real plot. Yeah. So number six leaves the watchmaker's shop and immediately outside, he encounters the woman, number 50, who had barged into his apartment And she is surprised to see him, and she asks how he found out. And he doesn't know what she's talking about, and it turns out that the watchmaker is her father. (laughs) And since she never mentioned her father to him, she doesn't know why he's here. Quite a coincidence that his watch would go bad um, (laughs) just after he met her. (laughs) Right. And she wants to know number six interest. And this gets back to the device he saw that her father was working on. And he says, I don't believe a device made to detonate an explosive is a toy and neither does your father. So he instantly identified the purpose of this, right? You have a trigger mechanism Mm -hmm. that moves a lever remotely. And so the purpose of that, he decides is going to be an explosive. Yeah. Then he kind of puts his arm around her and they walk off to talk, which surprised me because, again, we know, you know, he doesn't like to be physical with women at all, but seems to be okay with her. (laughs) When the tech lady who's in charge of predicting number six's day puts together a report, she puts that report in an envelope and then she holds the envelope up to the camera. (laughs) So we have plenty of time to read it. And it is addressed to the acting number two. Mm -hmm. So we discover now that the number two we've been following is actually the acting number two. Yeah. So the acting number two and his minion are discussing what's happening as they watch it on video. And the acting number two insists it's all going according to plan. And he says, soon number six will come to tell him that there's an assassination plot And he leans forward to the camera for a commercial break that's about to come up. And he says, (laughs) and he's going to tell me that I'm the intended victim. (laughs) And we fade to black. (laughs) And we are in the cafe. And number six and number 50, the woman, are at a table talking. And she says she knows very little about what's going on, but she knows that the intended victim of her father's device is number two. And number six insists that they go see her father, which is a little odd because... They were just there 30 seconds ago, (laughs) came to the camp. Maybe they've had a whole lunch in between. Who knows? Anyway, so they get up and go back to the watchmaker's place. 
This is where we see the acting number two and number 100, the purple coat guy, are watching on video, of course. And number two asks number 100 if he's certain his indoctrination of the watchmaker has been successful. And number 100 says he's never had a failure yet. I guess indoctrination can mean a lot of things. You know, I took it Mm -hmm. as he has some kind of procedure like we've seen where maybe they inject him with something or whatever. We don't see anything like that. So it could just be that he sort of radicalized him by just, you know, talking to him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It could just be ordinary mental manipulation. I don't think it's really clear. Yeah. So we're in the watchmaker's shop and number six and number 50 go to her father And the father and daughter have an argument. You know, she wants him to stop his plan, whatever it is. He's tired of hearing about it. He says it's all they ever talk about these days. He gets very upset and he yells. And he's yelling that she doesn't understand he's doing this for principle. They're in this prison for life. He's going to protest in a manner they cannot ignore. And he seems very sincere about this. And I think getting back to what we were just talking about, I'm I'm talking myself right now into, you know, it wasn't really some kind of drug programmer or, you know, one of the many things they do while you're sleeping. I think that this is a person who's already very upset about the situation, not unlike number six, we'll talk about in a moment. And so number 100 was just able to kind of amp up his Mm -hmm. emotions to, to get him to buy into whatever their plot is. Yeah. Number six calls him out and says, murder is the wrong approach. And the father corrects him, not murder, but assassination. (laughs) And I was thinking, is this a distinction without a difference? You know, I guess guess he's saying assassination is a, you know, it's a political maneuver, right? It's it's not like you're killing somebody for their wallet or something. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess there is a, something of a distinction there, although it's. I'd, I'd say one is the, a subset of the other. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing to me is I kind of hinted at there is that the father in this case is playing the role that number six usually does, right? The father is saying that everyone's sort of sheep and needs to be woken up. And number six is the one advising caution when usually right. it's number six running around <laughs> trying to get everyone to, to get upset. <laughs> But, you know, it's the whole thing that number 50 had said earlier, and number six believes it, which is, he says, if you do this, if you kill number two, the entire village will be punished. And the father's not impressed because he says maybe that's what they need to wake them up from their lethargy and make them angry enough to fight. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Always good to have someone making that choice for everyone else. Yeah. But if they... If they're, if he's really hoping that they're going to fight, then probably they should be assassinating Rover instead of number, <laughs> number two. Yeah. So the father refuses to discuss this any further, says he must get on with his work so it'll be ready in time. And we don't know what that deadline is yet. And number six stomps out of the store and slams the door. We're back in number two's office where number two and number 100 are watching and they're happy with the result. And number 100 says, since he can't reason with the watchmaker, he must come here to warn you. Mm-hmm. And now, <laughs> this is kind of funny to me, where they spend a bunch of time showing us multiple hidden cameras around number two's office that are going to be used. And number two calls the camera operators to make sure they're ready for when number six shows up. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you really need to spend all this time to tell us that there would be cameras in number two's office. There's cameras <laughs> everywhere <laughs> in the village. So it's a little <laughs> odd. <laughs> And uh, meanwhile, the control room is monitoring number six as he makes his way to the green dome. So he's gone directly from the watchmaker to talk to number two. 
And here they kind of contradict other episodes because, you know, they're always losing track of number six and trying to find him and not sure where he went. And here we see that not only do they have the video stuff, they have this sort of plastic map of the village and there's a red dot showing wherever number six is. So they have, you know, yet another way yeah. to monitor him. Yeah, following him in uh, in real time. And it, it looks kind of like a laser pointer, but it actually seems like the light is coming from behind the screen. Right. There's some guy back there with a pen light or something. <laughs> So number six gets to the green dome and he passes number 100 leaving who gives him the little be seeing you salute. But you know, number six doesn't know who he is and he gets into the office and number two rotates around in his chair and he's been pretending to read a report and he's surprised to see number six <laughs> invites him in, offers him coffee or tea. Number six tells him to forget the amenities. This is not a social call. And number two feigns surprise as number six tells him there's a plot to assassinate him. Number two says he doesn't believe it. And number six says he's not here to save number two, but to save everyone in the village from being punished. Number two says his observers see and hear everything, so they would have told him, so there can't be a plot. And number six points out that they don't believe everything. And number two knows exactly what he means. He says, ah, the jammers. And he thinks about it for a moment and he says, don't tell me this is about that little watchmaker. And he says, so they chose you to lead us into believing their fantasy. Did they convince you by showing you the gun? <laughs> number six said, they're not going to shoot you. They're going to blow you up. Number two asked number six to find out where and when and tell him as the laugh will do him an awful lot of good. <laughs> and number six leaves in a huff saying, once number two is blown up, he won't be laughing. Very unusual in the story where, you know, normally number six is pretty on top of things and understands what's going on or perceives them very quickly. In this case, so far, they are totally leading him around by the nose. Like he is buying into all the stuff that number two and number 100 have set up for him. Yeah, seems like it. And uh, number two then makes a call to verify the video and audio they wanted was captured. And we're outside at the bandstand and we have a little crowd listening to the music. And number 50 and number six talk while the music plays. And again, I'll make another production note. <laughs> they were really lazy and sloppy here. This is one of those <laughs> cases where they just use a set for with two chairs for number 50 and number six to talk. And then they give you, you know, this uh, larger external shot actually taken in Port Marion of people in front of the bandstand. And number 50 and number six are not there anywhere or not even stand ins. You know, there's only a few people. <laughs> you would easily be able to see them. So, you know, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a little sloppy, but okay. <laughs> uh, number six tells number 50 what happened, says he doesn't know what to believe, but he has no choice but to continue forward. And the village speakers announced that on Thursday, day after tomorrow, it will be Appreciation Day, where the village honors the brave and noble men who govern us so wisely. And I noticed in some of my reading on the web that people have, because of this, and another clue or two in other episodes, they specifically chose years that this would have had to occur in because, oh, Thursday only happened on this day of the month, you know, mm. in this particular year, that sort of thing. Yeah. So the village speakers tells us that the exciting event is going to start with an address by number two and will end by revealing the appreciation monument. Mm. There'll be speeches, thrills, and excitement. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure those things all go together. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a real humdinger of a ceremony. Yep. 
And number six says maybe more excitement than planned. And then we're at the watchmakers at night. There's a closed sign on the door, and we see a flashlight searching through the dark shop. Turns out it's number six and number 50 looking for what's going on. And they find a large velvet red case, and it contains the great seal of office, which we'll find out later. We've never seen this before, which is too bad that it would have been even better if they'd used it before. We find (laughs) out that whenever there is a ceremony, number two wears the seal of office. And this thing is freaking huge. You know, it's like Uh, the the, the rapper who had the big clock that he would wear around. uh, Oh, yeah. It was that Flavor Flav. Yeah. um, uh, So this is like that. It is really big and it's really thick. Number six says, well, it looks as though your father's making a replica of the seal. And he opens it and there's there's explosive inside. looks like C4 or something with a remote controlled detonator. The show acts as if this will just kill the person who's wearing it. The amount of explosive <laughs> inside this thing, <laughs> everybody <laughs> would be going down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's not a big brick, but I guess the plastic explosive really uh, packs a wallop. Yeah. And uh, that, that's a common thing in video games is that the explosives in video games have a far narrower range than real life like when you throw a grenade in real life you don't want to be anywhere mm-hmm. near that you know in a video game you could be 50 feet away from it and not not feel it yep so then we're in number two's office and number six enters with urgency something i noticed i don't know if they do this in every episode i'll have to watch but they do it throughout this one they literally have a blue spotlight that follows number six around whenever he's in there. So he has this blue on him and number two doesn't, right? He has normal lighting. So it, it somehow gives number six, I guess, a, a more intense look to have this mm. blue on him. And the billiard ball chair comes up out of the floor. Now we've seen this many times and this is very strange because this shot is completely out of focus. Yeah, I, I noticed that. Yeah, it's not very long. It's just a few seconds. But yeah, and we really don't even, we don't bad. see the number two, so it's not like they were trying to hide, you know, that it was a different number two or something. And when I was reading around that Pop Apostle site, they mentioned this as well, but they didn't have an answer for it. They just speculated that it was filmed from a monitor for some reason. And I have a theory, <laughs> which was informed by my editing of a previous podcast last night where I was running out of time and I was editing it till almost midnight. And, you know, you get to that point and you just, you start getting a little sloppy or you start just solving things the quickest way possible. So here is my little theory. I think the editors for this episode were up against it being going out and they didn't Mm -hmm. have the film for the chair coming up. But for some reason they had like a monitor that they could play it on, like the video or something. So mm. I think their workaround was what Papa and Fossil said. They decided to just film it off a monitor <laughs> yeah. and stick it in here because they'd run out of time. That That is my guess. It's a little weird. You'd think maybe after the fact for the Blu-rays and, and, and everything that they would have fixed that shot. But hmm. I guess that's a lot of time for one bad shot, but it's just so strange. <laughs> I mean, it's so bad. It's Yeah, yeah it, it sticks out very, very obviously. And I thought at first maybe it was going to, like, zoom out and show us somebody's watching this on a, mm-hmm. on a monitor. But nope, <laughs> that's supposed to be the real shot. So the unfortunate thing is that distracts from what's really a dramatic moment in the show. 
which is, you know, the, the, the billiard ball chair comes out, but it's turned away from us. So we can't see who's in it. And of course we're assuming it's going to be the acting number two that we've seen all along. But as the chair turns around, it's not our number two. It's an older man we've never seen before. Yeah. And unless you picked up on that acting number two on the envelope, I don't think there was anything else to indicate that this might be coming. Yeah, you're right. And probably most people wouldn't, right? I mean, they did they did really extend that shot of her holding up the envelope, but, you know, you mm. had to read. It, it was actually a lot of text on the envelope that you'd have to read. Right. So uh, I'm going to guess that probably most people have no idea that there might be a number number two around. Right. And number six doesn't know either. He says, I've come to see number two. <laughs> and the guy says, I am number two. And you've come to tell me there's a plot against my life. <laughs> and he says his colleague, who's the acting number two, is concerned about these violent plots that number six has been reporting during number two's absence. And number six is confused. And he says, plots? I've reported one only. And number two says, not so. My colleague, my heir presumptive, has collected evidence of you reporting a plot to every interim number two while I've been on leave. <laughs> now, this is one of those, you know, nothing completely works together WTF moments because all of a sudden we're supposed to understand that really there's been like one number two the entire time, but all the other number twos we've been seeing were just vacation replacements <laughs> for this guy. We're just all, all interim replacements. Right. And they never come back to this in a future story. So this is one of those things that they just say at this one time, <laughs> you know? but it's pretty significant if it is the case, but you know, and it would have to follow through later in the series, you would think, but no. Yeah. Number two says the psychiatrist warned me that you might not believe me saying you've reported multiple plots. Shall I show you proof? <laughs> and this comes into the whole video and audio thing that the acting number two was setting up. Number two shows him a series of videos with number six telling various number twos, some of which we have seen or will see, some of which were just inserted for this. One of them, I could tell they were trying to imply that it was Leo McKern, but it was just a guy made up like Leo McKern. It wasn't actually him. <laughs> but it does give you the sense that there may be number twos and stories that we haven't seen because they're not people who are actually in episodes. So number two shows him these videos. And in, in what is happening is number six is telling each of those number twos that they are going to be assassinated. Yeah. And it, it, it looks, it looks like they just took a single conversation that number six had and they chopped it up and distributed it among these other, among right. these other number twos. And it's not, I don't think I would be convinced if I was number six. <laughs> well, I, you know, I made a note. I mean, this is basically maybe the first ever deep fakes and <laughs> number six even calls them fakes. So I thought that was kind of funny, uh, but yeah, it's, it's not a con very convincing one. So number six says these are fake. And number two says, why would we be trying to convince you that you're not well? <laughs> Although they've done that plenty of times. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much standard operating procedure for the village. <laughs> yeah. Try to try to make number six think he's not well. It's yeah. probably half the episode. <laughs> so number six says, perhaps it's you they want to convince. And number two says, me, tomorrow I'm retiring. So, you know, obviously there's no point to killing me. And number six says, perhaps they're trying to save a pension. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And if, if I remember right, when he says that, number two looks genuinely concerned yeah. after that. <laughs> I, I think we see a progression, right? I mean, I think that he truly doesn't believe it going into this. When number six says that, for some reason, I guess, you know, saying that our, maybe the people who run this place are cheap or something, it does seem to give him a little bit of pause. <laughs> We're back at the cafe once again. <laughs> See, every other scene here is number 50 and number six talking in the cafe. Number six explains that they've discredited him because he's the only one that this number two might have believed. So he's kind of figured out the deal at this point. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally or not, I don't know if you have an opinion on this. Number 100 sits down at a nearby cafe table and number 50 points him out as the man who's working with her father. And since number 100 seems to do everything, you know, as part of a plot, I'm kind of assuming he wanted them to see him. Yeah, I would think so. And number six says he'd seen number 100 coming out of number two's house. So he immediately puts it together and says he must have been planning this assassination with the interim number two. We see that they're being watched on the screen in number two's office, as usual. For a while, they don't show us which number two is watching. You just see the the billiard ball chair and you know whoever's sitting in it is watching the video screen I, I think maybe they wanted it to be a little um ambiguous for a moment but then we see that it is the the actual older number two and the conversation that he's just heard where number six is saying that these two people had been plotting the assassination and had discredited number six this seems to get to him and he's getting troubled in fact, I'm going to guess, from, you know, based on what you said earlier, the little thing where, where he was bothered a bit by number six saying maybe they're trying to save a pension. I think that got him to listen in. Mm -hmm. And now that he's heard more, he's clearly getting upset. Yeah. And a minion comes in and that number two is called for. And number two tells him he wants him to go to visual records and get a specific videotape that he wants to review. The subject is warning of an assassination plot number six and my successor. <laughs> and the minion just stares at him and says it would be a waste of time. There is no recording of that description. And number two is not an idiot. He says, strange, even though you have no association with visual records, you are able to instantly tell me that this particular thing I'm asking for doesn't exist. <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> And, and we know it does exist because uh, the, or the acting number two made a big point of making sure all the cameras were working. Yep, yep. And that's how he put together that whole fake video. Yeah. And so number two asks the minion to explain himself. And the minion just stares ahead and says he is unable to. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like taking the fifth, you know. <laughs> yeah. And number two looks defeated and he says, I understand. The fact that you won't explain explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, it seems he believes everything number six has told him. Then we see some other office. So maybe it's kind of a side office for the acting number two. And when, when the real number two is around, he's on a phone, apparently talking to number one, tells him everything is going according to plan. And he's very amused with himself to come up with a <laughs> line. He says, it's going like clockwork <laughs> and he says there's nothing to worry about with number six we fully convinced him now at first i thought he meant they fully convinced number six but then i realized no what he's saying is they fully convinced number two that number six can't be trusted and then we're outside and 
The village speakers remind everyone the celebration is tomorrow, so it's one day from the last time we heard about it. Number six and number 50 are again at a table talking. And number 50 brings up a question I had. So, you know, the scriptwriter <laughs> decided to get ahead of this one. She says, if they want to do away with a man, why all the rigmarole? Why not just do it? And number six says, what would the rank and file think? They're due for retirement themselves one day. So they want to kill number two, but they want everyone to think it was an actual villager assassination plot. So people don't get the idea that retirement uh, might be brief. <laughs> yeah. Which kind of implies they may actually have a sort of retirement assassination program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess they, that's uh, one way to save on medical bills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the organization doesn't want people knowing all the bad stuff it's going to do to its own people. I mean, that's a, uh, you know, you'll find little instances of that in various mafia movies, you know, where they've got to, they've got to whack somebody who's part of the mob, but they can't let it be known right. that they did it. <laughs> well, and of course the, the interim number two and, you know, number six will point this out later is being very dumb here because he's assuming this isn't going to apply to him uh, <laughs> <laughs> later. Yeah, we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think part of the implication, honestly, is, well, this is a young guy, so he does feel like mm -hmm. that's a long way away. I'll deal with it. I'll probably be able to figure something out, you know. Right. Uh, number 50 uh, pleads with number six, says, please, you must prevent this thing for my father's sake. And number six says, for everybody's sake. I like a lot of the twists in the story, and it's a really interesting twist that instead of trying to escape the village, and, you know, even remember number six had said to Leo McKern that he was going to come back and, like, firebomb this place. So he's gone <laughs> from being a person intending to destroy the village to being someone who's trying to save the village for the sake of the people who are in it. Yeah. And now we're back to number two's office, but I noticed something. I didn't read about this anywhere. I just noticed it myself. Uh, talk about deep fakes. This is a fake number two office. <laughs> it is not the big round room. It's a square room, and they've taken a corner of it and dressed it up to imply that it's the big room, and they only show you little bits. And they have, like, the penny-farthing bicycle behind number two, and he's sitting in the billiard ball chair, but it's not the big room. Which yeah. is, at this point, you know, we're so familiar with the big round room, it's a little uh, disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't catch that. Huh. So the real number two is in his chair, head in his hands, and he yells at the butler that he doesn't want to see anyone, but number six bursts in anyway. And at this point, number two does believe number six, but he's just defeated. And number six says, you don't mind? And number two, and this gets back to what we were just talking about, says, of course I mind, but I never thought it could happen to me. <laughs> and number six wants to prevent it, but number two says preventing is only postponing. You've never understood us, number six. We never fail. <laughs> number six then explains in graphic detail how they're going to blow up number two. <laughs> and number two looks stricken and says, I can think of better ways to die. <laughs> yeah. Although it probably wouldn't be pretty quick, actually. <laughs> That's true. And then we're back to that alternate office with the acting number two. And he's reporting once again. <laughs> he says, uh, again, very pleased with himself. It's dead on schedule, you could say. <laughs> and he says it'll be just as number one ordered. The people are already gathering. It'll be very spectacular. Nothing can go wrong now. I'll stake my future on it. <laughs> and giving the way the village works, like, well, duh, yeah, you're staking your yeah. future on it. 
So we're outside, and it's a what we now know to be a typical village celebration. Everybody's out with their <laughs> umbrellas and their marching bands and their placards, you know, placards of the old number two and the new number two. Yeah. And the number twos come out to the balcony and wave to the crowd, and some dude we don't know in a top hat kicks things off with a boring speech, <laughs> while the retiring number two is just looking ill. <laughs> <laughs> The acting number two takes off his glasses, and I had noticed earlier, and I and so it's interesting. This comes back. His glasses have very, very thick. Uh, I don't know what you call them, arms. You know, the mm-hmm. I should know. I've worn glasses all my life. But while other people have, you know, very thin sort of modern glasses, he has his very thick borders to his glasses. And it turns out there's a reason for that. He's got a transmitter embedded in the glasses. So while he's standing there in front of everyone, he's sort of whispering, and. He's talking to number 100, and number 100 is hearing it and then talking back through his watch. So I'm going to say that number 100 had uh, one of the very early prototype Apple watches. (laughs) 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 You know, the village can get their hands on that sort of thing. Oh, sure. (laughs) And, uh, he, you know, number 100 is assuring him that everything's going to go okay and he should stop worrying. And as the unending speech goes on, number six wanders through the crowd to figure out how it's going to go down and see if he can stop it. He encounters number 50, and she says she can't find her father anywhere. So number six says, you know, this is a wide-range transmitter. He could be anywhere. He's looking all over. And then he sees a glint from binoculars in the tower. The father's been up there with binoculars, and he's very, not very cautious. <laughs> easy to see uh, the sunlight glinting off of it. And in true spy fashion, number six immediately takes off for the tower. And meanwhile, the butler is delivering the explosive seal of office to number two to put on. And we now watch two people who are very much not number six and number 50 running through the village (laughs) to the tower. (laughs) It's just one of those really obvious ones. Because as we said, you know, it was quite a pain to go and film in Port Marion, right? You'd have to take out Mm -hmm. your whole day and travel there and all this. So they needed this to actually happen in the village because they're running through the village and there's no way to fake that. So they're just going to get two random actors or, you know, extras and and dress them up so they don't have to take number six out there or take uh, Patrick McGowan out there. (laughs) (laughs) And as they're running through the village, the seal is placed on number two's shoulders and he smiles as if he's getting a colonoscopy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the father in the tower grabs the transmitter he's ready to blow up number two and really everybody else <laughs> as number six and number 50 run up the stairs but they get there in time to stop him and number two starts his speech and the acting number two is getting concerned now because eventually as we'll see uh you know they're going to give him the seal of office <laughs> um so he needs this all to have gone down before then and he's pinging number 100 through his glasses phone <laughs> to see what's wrong. And number 100 sets out to figure out what's up. Number six takes the transmitter, leaves the tower, runs into number 100 right outside. And we get our standard, you know, 1970s fist fight uh, <laughs> as they throw each other around on onto, um, picnic, <clears throat> onto picnic tables and such. And this takes long enough that number two finishes his speech, which he kind of drew out it's like he was you know trying to give them time to get this thing over with (laughs) and he's clearly wondering why he isn't in pieces yet (laughs) and the seal is taken from his shoulders and placed on the acting number two (laughs) who doesn't seem really honored by this (laughs) and i don't know how this would be but as 
number six is fighting with this other guy. He seems to realize that number two will be able to hear him through number 100's watch. Mm -hmm. So he yells out that he wants number two to turn his speech into a confession. And meanwhile, they keep fighting and the new number two has this achievement monument unveiled. We don't really get to see the monument. We just see a little plaque that says achievement on it. So I think they didn't, I think they decided not to have the props department make something fancy. Yeah. And number six prevails, of course, and he holds up the transmitter and comes to the platform and he hands it to the former number two standing there. So, so he's giving him the transmitter that could blow up the acting number two. And he tells them they can't do anything to him while he has it. And the helicopter is waiting and he can leave. And number two says, you know, what's the point? They're going to get him eventually. <laughs> number six is very blunt. As long as it's not here, fly now, pay later. <laughs> <laughs> so he's still got a death sentence, but at least it won't hurt everyone else here. So number two um, starts to go. The acting number two sees him, sees that he's holding the transmitter. And number two flees. And the acting number two immediately wants to get this thing off of his chest. But number six runs up to him, grabs his arm, shakes it, congratulates him. <laughs> yeah. Keeps him from being able to take it off and waits until the helicopter leaves. And then this gets to something we said earlier. <laughs> number six says to, to the now actual number two, and now you can look forward to your own retirement, and I'm sure they will arrange something equally suitable for you when the day comes. <laughs> <laughs> And I love this really last ending line. He says, uh, um, number six says to number two, be seeing you, won't I? <laughs> and it's the end of the episode. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this thing. <laughs> what, what do you think about the story? Well, it was fun. I liked it. <laughs> I liked it. I guess, I guess her number was number 50. Definitely, you know, we've talked in the past about how they tend to cast sort of real-looking people, for lack of a better term. And this is one of the fairly rare cases, apparently, where they get somebody who's uh, almost like a fashion model type, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? She's mm -hmm. she's just sort of a, you know, you'd see her on the, the cover of a magazine or something, uh, you know, un uncommonly photogenic actors <laughs> for this uh, for this show. So it was interesting. Change but pace. to their credit, she, she actually could act. I mean, it, she... Oh, yeah was coming across, in fact, as as someone who didn't see herself that way, right? She didn't seem to act like she was a beauty right. who was going to capture everybody's eyes or anything. She was really just playing the daughter of this, you know, oh, yeah. dotty <laughs> watchmaker. Yeah, she wasn't putting on airs or anything like that. I liked a number of the twists in the story. First of all, you know, the fact there's another number two and all that, I'll let you say, even though they, they give you a chance to see that, it's really a... um out of the blue thing and it really changes the direction of the story you know you have no way of knowing what's actually going on until pretty far along into the episode and they do a really interesting bait and switch which is based on the template of the other episodes we've seen there's an obvious plot line here which i assume was going to be what was going to happen which is early on when number six is told about the jammers and the fact that the security people have stopped paying attention to the plots the jammers say they're going to do there's a really obvious plot line, right? Oh, number six is going to work with the jammers to come up with a plot to escape and the security people won't pay attention to it. And that'll let him, you know, at least almost escape. And that's not what happens at all, right? It turns out that no, it's actually 
the village management, or number one in this case, is using that fact against his own number two. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, people don't pay attention to the jammers. Yeah, and uh, you know, if you really want to get conspiratorial, you could even speculate that uh, some of the jammers may have been planted by number one to set that whole thing <laughs> yeah, in motion. <laughs> We've talked about this a bit, but I just, I don't think you could understand this episode without multiple viewings. I think um, seeing it once, you know, <laughs> kind of on your TV while kids are yelling or whatever, I just don't think you'd know what was going on. Yeah, yeah, it would be, uh, I mean, I, th- I think I, I understood basically the episode from the first viewing. Then I, I didn't actually do a second viewing. I watched half of the, you know, for, for my half of the notes. But So I've seen it one and a half times, but I thought I understood. I was able to follow it. You know, I, I didn't know all the intricacies of it, but uh, I, I was able to follow it. But I was, I was in a controlled environment, so to speak. You know, mm. I just had uh, a lazy dog in the room and that was it. So <laughs> <laughs> no distractions. You know. I appreciate and it, it, it's one of those stories where he's not trying to escape and they really flip everything on his head. You know, he, instead of fighting the village, he's trying to save the village. He's actually trying to save number two from getting assassinated instead of trying to do something to number two. <laughs> it's, you know, they really just turned everything on its head. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the actors. You know, you mentioned number 50, the acting number two. What did you think of him? Oh, they got a kick out of him. He was kind of a fun, interesting, you know, he, he had that, he had a little bit of a micromanagerial streak, uh, but uh, since I wasn't on the receiving end of it, it, it didn't affect me much. I liked just that he was kind of uh, kind of optimistic and buoyant. I mean, you know, he's still evil as a number two <laughs> and all, but personality-wise, he was an entertaining number two. Yeah, I thought he really sold it. What surprises me is the actor has said he had absolutely no idea what was going on. He had no <laughs> idea how to play this thing. He had no idea how the, all of this worked. You know, as a prisoner, so it's pretty complicated. And watching it, you would never think that. I mean, he seems totally in control of himself. Yeah, yeah. It may be, may, maybe uh, there was somebody really good directing this episode and just knew how to tell him to play it. But uh, mm-hmm. whatever... Whatever the case, uh, yeah, he did fine. I wouldn't have guessed that he didn't he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so, how about our uh, retiring number two? <laughs> oh, I liked him. Yeah, he uh, he seemed genuinely worried after he finally started realizing what was going on. I uh, yeah, he was good. Uh, it was an interesting twist, uh, which you, you mentioned earlier, to suggest that maybe he has been the real number two all along and all the other ones we've seen were the, uh, you know, sort of stand-ins while he's off on vacation or whatever. Uh, it's an interesting twist, but you know, it's kind of late in the series to <laughs> haul that out all of a sudden, but uh, <laughs> right. who knows? <laughs> Just adds to the confusion and mystery, I guess. Mm. And we talked a bit about the father. I thought he was at least perfectly cast and they did a good job as, Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was good. So the ultimate question here, was this one worth watching for a modern audience? Oh, sure. I know you've said that there are going to be a few episodes that you wouldn't recommend, and it'll be interesting to get to those and see whether or not I I agree. But yeah, so far, this, this show is, has been, for, for me, it's been a solid uh, 
one hit after another for me. Hey, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Yeah, and I don't know if it was the right way to go to for for me to preemptively remove what I consider to be the bad episodes because it kind of <laughs> pushes against our format here of trying to decide whether something's worth watching or not. Um, but we had the complication of wanting to watch in a certain order and have a certain experience. But the, right. you'll get a chance not too far in the future. In fact, our next episode is going to be Many Happy Returns. And after that, we'll be watching as uh, at once. Uh, we'll see if we end up splitting into two episodes or not. We'll be watching the final two episodes of the series. And in unusual form, I'm going to give you a pre-viewing tip, you and our audience, which is I'm going to say right up front, I encourage you to watch this next episode, Many Happy Returns, and think of it as the end of the narrative story of The Prisoner. And that, you know, without getting into details until we get there, going into the final two episodes, which I really treat as one long episode, to think of that as sort of a coda. Hmm. Because... Again, this is the way I'm structuring this. So essentially, the next episode, we get to the end of the story, and then we sort of have, you know, what was it? Uh, uh, Tolkien had the Silmarillion, right? <laughs> uh, some extra material. Uh, okay. Hmm. We'll see how that works. All right. So we will see you next time. Well, you've reminded me of the other thing I was thinking about. So my new favorite YouTube channel is called Corridor Crew, and it's these visual effects artists who do all sorts of different things and really interesting, usually short 10 to 15 minute videos. And mm -hmm. some of what they do that's really interesting are they sit down with stunt people and watch different stunts from different movies and have them talk about it. And really fascinating. You learn a lot about how stunts work and everything, and you start yeah. to you know, be able to watch a scene and, and understand what's going on in a way that you normally wouldn't. And one of the things that I, because of watching this channel and watching dozens and dozens of their videos about stunts, I could see what was happening here, which is there are times when they're supposed to be fighting and one guy's supposed to be thrown or, you know, flip over or whatever. And mm -hmm. he's, a, the other person isn't even touching it. You know, he's just <laughs> flipping over and falling down and all this, which is, you know, the person who's sort of being beaten up by number six. And this is a, a classic thing, especially in kind of badly done stunt scenes. So for example, in The Last Jedi, there's uh, visually sort of a compelling thing where where uh, Ray and um, uh, Adam, what's his name, the, the bad guy, are Driver. having a... Yeah, Adam Driver having a lightsaber fight in this dark room with um, all these guys in red. And it's kind of visually compelling. But once you've seen it through the eyes of these stunt people, it is terrible. <laughs> the two actors did not get time or whatever, did not get appropriate training. So they're just mm. waving these lightsabers around. And then the stunt people in the background, they're having to either wait to get hit or they, you know, when you have a whole bunch of them, 
they got to be doing something. You can't just stand there. So they'll just like yeah. fall over for no reason. So anyway, I recommend Corridor Crew. And, and uh, although it will ruin a lot of uh, stunt scenes for you or make them more interesting, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. <laughs> you see, you know, 